Just throwing your mic around, man? Yeah, now I'm just angry. Okay, well, welcome to A Century in Cinema. We just did another episode, so I don't know why I'm blanking on our intro. Uh, I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And I believe that Arthur is nervous about recording this episode, and that's why he's flubbing. (laughs) Well, this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. This year, 1948. We're talking about the movie The Red Shoes from directors Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. Again! Yep, Powell and Pressburger. The archers, they shoot me in the heart. And if you didn't listen to our episode on Black Narcissus, you might want to. We're doing a double feature with these two directors today. We're unafraid of complete overlap with these conversations. We're having them in the same evening. Yes, yes. The Red Shoes, I watched on the Criterion channel. You can always check our show notes to see where it's streaming. Let's talk about the year 1948, huh? Mm-hmm. I think the big news in the Cold War this year is the Berlin Airlift. You might remember that after the war, the capital of Germany was divided into East and West. The Soviet Union blockades West Berlin and forces the U.S. to airlift supplies to their side of the city for 11 months. More escalation in the Cold War. Czechoslovakia becomes communist. You have sad news out of India where Gandhi is assassinated by Hindu extremists. Israel is officially declared as an independent state, and so is North Korea. The UN establishes the World Health Organization, and polio cases are on the rise. Andrew, here's an interesting number. Okay. Three years ago, so 1945, only 5,000 homes are recorded as having televisions. Obviously, radio is a bigger deal at this time. But by 1948, this year, that number's exploded to one million. Wow. That's huge. I think that statistic is from the U.S.? I'm not sure. Yeah, so very quickly, television is becoming a a thing. In, in general, there's just a housing boom going on. I mean, this is the time of the suburbs kind of growing everywhere, being built really cheaply all over the place. And there's the baby boom going on following the war. Um, up, 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 up. I'm probably missing a lot, as usual. Uh, I see that India attacks Pakistan, but I don't know anything about that. Let's talk about movies. I know a little bit about movies. This is a banger year for movies. A lot of directors who've been working their way towards Breakthrough um, we keep mentioning him. We're we're like low-key building to our final discussion about Kurosawa, which is going to happen much later. But he really breaks through in a huge way with Drunken Angel this year. It's a, one of his first really major films that is a huge hit at the box office and is also a mild international breakthrough. It's the first moment of realization that he's not just a classic filmmaker in Japan. He is a filmmaker who is going to have an impact on the world. Bicycle Thieves is released this year. So Italian neorealism is sort of, I mean, a lot of people would say that it peaked with this movie. 
I really want to revisit that yeah. after our Rome Open City discussion. Speaking of Rome Open City, Germany Year Zero, Rossellini's final film of Italian neorealism before he veers into more religious pictures and and eventually starts going into postmodernism. It's a short film and it's about a child going through war grounds. It's a really moving picture. Um, and Alfred Hitchcock releases Rope. Um, one where he was able to use his filming for the edit technique to the absolute limit of its power by having the entire film seem as if it's one long shot, even though it is not. Um, and then my favorite film of this year is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a high-octane action venture movie with one of the most breathtaking and incredible third act set pieces you can ever watch in a movie um so yeah a lot of great films in 1948 or maybe it's just a year that i've seen more movies maybe every year just has nothing but banger movies and it's just a matter of what i've seen more of or not but (laughs) you're not the only one that can do a history lesson arthur you know no that was great dude (laughs) i should do that for every episode that would have been great (laughs) guess it's not too late we're not even halfway there um we should talk about yeah i'm pushing it off a great film that came out this year right the red (laughs) shoes a seminal classic loved by most um <laughs> you you've you've got the plot this time, Arthur. Yeah, I can do this. I can do this. Uh so the film is really about three people in a ballet company. Um we are first introduced to the director Lermontov, a authoritarian but brilliant director of ballet, and he takes under his wing Vicky, a ballerina who slowly moves up the ranks and eventually becomes his muse, as well as the composer, the new composer in the company named Julian. And Vicky and Julian form a relationship, and Lermontov becomes incredibly jealous that his muse is being taken away from him. He thinks that he needs her in order to create his masterpieces, especially the ballet, the red shoes, which is all about um, these magical shoes that you put them on and the ballerina dances forever. The shoes just make her dance and dance and dance. In the middle of the film, there is an extraordinary ballet sequence that encapsulates the, the red shoes and the, the dance that they're all putting on. And the film culminates in a tragedy as Vicky tries to escape the company and run away with Julian. But... She puts on the red shoes that she maybe commits suicide, maybe falls off the ledge onto the train tracks. The red shoes might have really taken control of her. But yeah, I like that interpretation the most. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify on a plot description here, this doesn't happen because she's running away with Julian. It happens because she cannot make a decision between her two passions. I, yeah, that is true. That is true. Yeah. So I, I feel like that's very important to the overarching themes of this masterpiece. <laughs> Um, just to, just to get the elephant, um, out there, it has already been made clear to me, Arthur didn't like the movie and I'm not going to speak for him, but this is a movie that I love and cherish very dearly. I don't really give ratings to movies ever because I don't see the value in it, but there are 20 films that I've given full marks to five out of five stars. This is one of them. Um, I think this is a masterpiece of cinema. So 
With that being said, I really, I, I genuinely am, and there's no no actual hard feelings. I'm just playing it up for comedy. I, I want to know what your opinions on this movie were. I was fine with it. I, I think I liked Black Narcissus just quite a bit better. Okay. And watching them one right after the other, I was just struck by how much I liked Black Narcissus. I preferred it quite a bit more. This is still a very well-made film, quite clearly. I actually love the sequence in the middle, the ballet dance. Oh, yeah. Which is choreographed and filmed specifically for the cinema. You slowly begin to realize that this is not taking place on a stage in a theater. There's no way that this could be okay. And then they're introducing all these like magical elements. And then there's visual effects. And then there's just crazy things going on that make it really unique. So I love that scene. Yeah. But I just felt like the film was too long. I, I know that's that's not like a great criticism, but really I just felt its length. Mm. I, I appreciated that Black Narcissus had a quick pace to it. It felt like every scene felt really important. And in this one, it felt like some scenes were there to just add embellishment. I mean, there's nothing wrong with them, but I, I, I did feel like this film felt long. I can understand that. Just watching Black Narcissus and then this film right afterwards, I couldn't help but compare them. I mean, we're talking about the same directors. Yeah. I think if we weren't, I'd be a lot more forgiving for its length. I feel like they're such different films. Yeah. Really. They are considered by people to be their two huge masterpieces. Nothing they made before or after had anywhere near the impact of these two films, which were released just right after each other. I'll get my biases out of the way. We've actually discussed this um, on the To Be or Not To Be episode. If a film involves stage work, involves backstage drama, involves a theater troupe or anything like that, I am automatically acclimated to like it just a little bit more. I knew, I knew you'd go there, too. I knew this was yeah. going to be a big thing for you. I, I think the mixture of theater and film within this movie is... Honestly, like one of the most successful depictions of it, which is funny because Moira Scherer, upon reading the script, thought that it was a very unrealistic ballet company. I was never a part of a professional ballet company, but I studied ballet for years. And I can definitely see where she's coming from if she was looking at it as I'm literally in a ballet company and this movie is a movie. But with the way it translates things through the cinematic lens to the audience, I think it's a really great depiction of what things are like backstage and the camaraderie between people. I love that there's no drama between the different dancers. I like that the entire vibe of this company is we are all working together to put on this show because truly that is what always happens in every show I've ever been a part of. It, it always comes down, even if people leave, even if there is drama with people, eventually things always settle down and it becomes, we are all working together to put on this piece of art together. And I feel like films about theater and stage way too often tend to lean into this direction of we're pitting this actress against this actress. This movie doesn't do that at all. It's drama is fully centered around our main character. And I love that aspect of it. 
So <laughs> I'll get that bias out of the way. That might be, and, I, and I've seen this movie many, many times. It is way too late in the game for me to like reassess. Like I've had time. So like it's. Yeah, I'm not asking you to reassess it. I'm also fully aware that my uh, minor complaints with it are going up against your complete love and adoration of it. I am losing this fight. I am <laughs> resigned. I don't know what I'm talking about. I watched this once. And there is no fight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I was, I just was, I was a little shocked because truly, uh, when you said at the beginning of Black Narcissist that one you liked and one you didn't, and then you revealed in that episode that you liked Black Narcissist, I cannot tell you why, but I was like, okay, he wasn't a big fan of Black Narcissist. Maybe it was the depiction of the Indian people. Maybe it was, Maybe the tonal shift didn't work for him. Like, I don't know. I In my head, I was like, it, he wasn't a big fan of that. So when it was the red shoes, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I don't know how I to think handle this, that. <laughs> this idea of uh, people becoming obsessed with their art and dying for their art, it's a theme and a trope that I've seen a lot of. And that doesn't mean that, you know, it's not done well here. And that it, it doesn't mean that I'm like looking for something completely original. I'm not stupid. I know that every story has been done a million times. It's just, yeah, I, I felt like there were scenes throughout this where I was like, okay, let's get on with it. Here we go. Yep. Get to the dance. Thank you. All right. The British people speaking British. <laughs> There's a lot of British accent in here. So much British accent. I mean, the entire opening sequence of just all the students uh, sitting in the theater and they're all talking super posh with each other um, because the, you've got the people who are there for the dancers and the people who are there for the music. And that's, and that's the central argument of ballet is like, what is the art form truly on display in ballet? You've got people that go for the music and people who go for the dancing. And of course, the answer is that it's a beautiful synthesis of both art forms together. These these debates have happened. And I like that the film starts off with all of these cocky students who are still they don't have the most nuanced opinions because they're all still young and in college and they're having this argument over i'm here for this lead ballet dancer i'm here for the lead for the composer's work just stuff like that this movie is made by people who love ballet and understand ballet i feel like another problem with films that take place on stage is this like (laughs) cursory knowledge of kind of what you think a show or a play is or what happens backstage and then the rest of it is all drama would that's just not in any way realistic fun and entertaining and possibly great i love black swan <laughs> but yeah, this movie Wait, didn't just... moria the ballerina who played uh vicky in the film mm-hmm. didn't she say that this was an unrealistic depiction of what happens backstage yes i i don't know what her exact opinion on that was she read the script said she thought it was unrealistic but i've watched this movie with other theater people it might be difference between theater people and ballet people two very different art forms ballerinas suffer way more for their art than theater people do on the majority on the majority you know obviously there are special cases but they are literally sacrificing their spinal structure for their art. <laughs> um, so so th- there might be something specific to the intricacies of ballet, especially, that she felt was missing. 
And it might have to do with the fact that people are leaving and coming in and leaving and coming in and then they fall in love and want to get married and Lermontov is like, well, now you can't dance with me. That stuff does all feel very hokey. If you're in a ballet company and you're scheduled to dance this many shows, it's going to happen. So I think that's mainly what she's talking about. She herself was able to just drop out and then they just take off the red shoes because they're like, oh, no one can dance it but her. So I think it's more of those things that fold directly into the plot. But the depiction of them as a group, I think, is very genuine. Okay, because she said that she almost didn't take this role because of that. They were trying to find a dancer who could pull off the acting, and she just kept saying no over and over again. But after her audition, they were so sold. They were like, you can dance and you can pull off this performance. And they auditioned other ballerinas at the time, and they just were completely dissatisfied with their performances as far as their acting for the screen goes. They ended up working together again, and I think that she was overall very happy with the film. I mean, I really do appreciate that they went out and got actual ballerinas and people who were dancers first in order to play these roles. Oh, yeah. There's no way this movie would have worked without it. All of the dance sequences are so good. This is as good a time as any to talk about the structure of this movie, if I may. <laughs> I think you can, Is this yeah. just going to be me taking the <laughs> Taking the mic. Um, <laughs> like, he's not going to this this today. No, 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 no. I don't, I don't feel that way. But um, this film is structured in a very unorthodox way because essentially the third act climax is kind of in the middle of the movie. And then drama and tension that would normally lead up to a third act climax come after it. And then the ending is more of a period at the end of a sentence than it is an exclamation point. I think that that can throw people off. Yeah, you you kind of expect the big explosive moment to happen in the third act, but it just doesn't in this movie. It's the central part of the movie. It's the heart of the whole movie. All of the dance sequences shown before and after do take place on stages. And so you're, you're thinking, okay, these are the dance scenes. And then it just leads to this, I mean, magnum opus of a moment in a movie where the whole thing is just like, just kidding. It's an acid trip. Buckle up. If this, like, if you were to pretend this was a 17 minute short film and it was just that, you would be gobsmacked by this movie. Yes. And I think I'd prefer that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they go over all of the themes and everything that needs to be said in that in that sequence. So you get what you need. Well, he asks her, you know, are you going to imagine anything when you dance? And she says she doesn't imagine. She's focused on the dance. And then so for the first time in her career, she's imagining what's happening around her. It goes in full acid trip. I mean, she's like swirling through the clouds and like cellophane is dancing around her. And she's like falling down through like ground that doesn't exist i mean this is like like it did like we kind of said with black narcissist kind of a disney moment yeah it is like something out of fantasia just something something crazy and then she gets the church scene starts up and it's completely a stage again everyone's just in costumes and makeup again there's no special effects going on and she dances on stage and dies and the way that piece ends is like okay the way the piece begins and the way the piece ends are both things that you could absolutely pull off on stage and so the film sort of brings things back to reality within the ballet itself 
and then continues with the story. It's almost like an intermission, but it's the best part of the movie. (laughs) Um, Because if you were to cut it out and you were just to say the Red Shoes would perform that night, the story of the film would be completely unaffected. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It just sees an opportunity to make something different and to do something that really is not considered normal within the structure of film and the writing of scripts. And it guns for it unapologetically. Um, I think all the location shooting, especially with the Technicolor cameras and stuff, I mean, when they're in Paris, it all just looks so extravagant and beautiful in the mountains in the background. Her climbing that stairwell with that ginormous green cape and her little crown. Oh, my God. Opulent. Oh, that's gorgeous. <laughs> I just love it. Like, the whole film is just a dessert. Like, it's just a huge cake. And I love it. Remember, Technicolor film is incredibly durable, preserves really well. So this is a gorgeous film and it's held up. What we're watching is what the filmmakers intended. And it looks pretty, for sure. Um, There is one shot in the red shoes that I will take a moment to complain about. Um, When uh, Julian and Vicky are on this balcony... And they're supposed to be looking over the ocean. It fully looks like they're just standing in front of a wall with a painting on it. Because they are. There's no post effect going on with that matte painting. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to let my imagination soar. This is fine. And then they try and trick you with this train effect of a train sound effect and this smoke machine going past them. And in that shot, every time I see that shot, I'm like... Different art director because like Black Narcissist, the <laughs> the way it handles those matte paintings and those perspectives, something like that would never have happened. But it's honestly the only moment that I feel looks that way. But I mean, and like, honestly, that shot lasts maybe five or six minutes. This movie is two hours and 10 minutes. If it was Arthur's, it would be hour and 20, maybe. It sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so... I, I do, I am interested, um, because I love discussing movies with you. Yeah, we tolerate each other. <laughs> um, what, besides it being too long, what was it about this film that didn't quite grab you as much as Black Narcissus? We did mention that uh, Maria Shearer, ballerina first, she can act, but she being the protagonist and not having the same presence that a movie star or an actress who's been classically trained, maybe that just couldn't hold my attention. Mm. I I still think she does a good job. You know, I don't think she's a bad actress, but when I think of a a film like the best years of our lives, which is very long. Yeah. It's a character driven film with great acting. And I, I felt like that was able to hold my attention quite a bit more and like I said, I've seen these tropes before, and I was just waiting for the film to hit its beats. Yeah, that's my that's my own subjective personal feeling. Just watching the movie that doesn't mean it's right. Uh, I'm not gonna I'm not I'm, I'm not gonna say that uh, no one should watch this film or that it doesn't have any merit. That's not true at all. <laughs> How do you feel about the film? past the red shoes ballet do you think it drops off there yes and that's so when you mentioned that the film has a strange structure 
where the climax is kind of there at the midpoint, and then uh, the film just sort of ends with her falling off that balcony into the train. Was it a suicide? Was it her dying for the art, the shoes taking her over? That's kind of interesting, but yeah, the the build-up to that felt a little flat, maybe? Yeah. The first time I watched this, I was really surprised because I had sort of been led to believe that the entire movie was nothing but dance. When it took a second for things to get rolling, I was like, hmm, this is not what I was expecting at all. All the drama with Julian and his previous professor and all of that was, I mean, I was compelled by it, but I just wasn't expecting it. And then when the Red Shoes Ballet happened, I mean, I was just sitting there like, <laughs> this is the greatest movie ever made. Like, I was sitting there watching it like, this is the greatest movie ever made. And then when it was over and the movie kept going, I remember thinking like, oh, like I really did think maybe like I've seen or two that was going to be like the climax, but it just keeps going. But I do, I, I love the ending. Um, Even the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, that was so good. All that to say, I do understand where you're coming from with it, even if I don't feel the same way. This ending is really interesting to me because I like that it's a film about this woman who is her entire life is being kind of played with and controlled by these two men, neither of which can give her everything she wants, one in a romantic fashion and one not. And it destroys her. You know, it's not about like a self-destruction because of this striving for perfection. It's not about this tortured artist who goes too deep into their craft and is unable to escape. Like, even though it predates so many of those stereotypes in film, as far as how theater and stuff is depicted, it's so far ahead of the curve of them by having it be this turmoil of having a personal life and a professional life. And I think the directors are sort of projecting themselves into it, of thinking, of saying, you know, we're being forced to choose between having regular lives and being these directors who put out these huge films and how tough of a balance that is. Yeah, and and I, I don't think she kills herself, even though literally that's most likely what happened. But I think the whole thing, I think the ending just turns into a, an allegory of the inability to choose and the struggle within being too much and taking her. Um, and, it, you know, and it's a fairy tale. Yeah. And I mean, the ending doesn't work if she just committed suicide, even though that's kind of what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, poetically, the ending only works <laughs> if it parallels with the themes of the fairy tale that they're uh, doing a ballet on. Right. Right. And also all the close ups of the red shoes as she's running away from yes. the two men. Going at the end. down the stairs and stuff. Uh, great shot. Amazing shot. So, yeah, that is what the ending is. It is a 100 percent allegory. Do you find it interesting that the two musicals or dance films we've had on our list are both basically about women and being observed or controlled by men on stage? And they're both like movies that I love dearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh... We're referring to Dance Girl Dance from 1940. 
Yeah, I, I do think that's interesting. I like that Dance Girl Dance is a movie that's it's about these two women and we see how they're both affected by the system in a different way. And this movie is about one woman and we follow her from persevering ingenue all the way to professional ballerina. Yeah, they're very different films, but very similar messages about these women who are being controlled. Honestly, and this is this is my opinion on the whole affair. I think Julian is totally the villain of this story. <laughs> oh, Julian, the composer guy, sucks. Yeah, like I again, it's allegorical, so I understand she has to be tugged between her love for dance and her love for this man. But he is unable to provide her with the things that she passions and strives for while he is getting to pursue his passions. And Lermontov isn't innocent either. If he wasn't so convinced that anyone who falls in love can't be a great ballet dancer, which is his whole thing. Parallels with Joss Whedon, who we mentioned way back when in uh, Pandora's Box. In that episode, I actually also want to clarify my views too, just because this is all being recorded. In that episode, I mentioned how she had moved past it and forgiven him because that's what she said in that. Wait, who's she? Who's she? A charisma carpenter. Okay. And what was, uh, catch us up. What's the situation? <laughs> I can't believe it. So, so in that episode, I mentioned that uh, charisma carpenter had said in an interview years ago, all of these things that he'd done to her, but she also had mentioned that she would work with him again and she'd forgiven him. Um, and so that was sort of what I said. But since that episode has been released, Charisma Carpenter has come out and made a much more profound statement saying that she would never work with him again. He was an abusive person. She's been to therapy. She has a good support group. So I I just kind of want to make it clear that I stand with Charisma Carpenter. And um, yeah, I, she even mentioned in the statement she made on Twitter, she actually mentioned that she had said that in a previous interview, but that she doesn't feel that way anymore. So wait, how does that tie into the red shoes? Because she's um, being controlled by the ballet director. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, you say you, you say here, what is it about the story that makes it timeless? These notes were made with the implication that you were going to like the movie. I can't lie. About oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Um, but you know, I mean, do you, would you consider this story timeless? I know you, you said that you don't feel like this film is all about someone, you know, dying for their art, but it, there is still that feeling of obsession, not only from Vicky, but also from the director, this obsessive feeling of just wanting to create something beautiful for the sake of it and going to any lengths and destructive, hurtful lengths to, yeah, I write, I direct films. I saw some of myself in that sort of mentality. I think that feeling is timeless for a lot of artists. Back when I used to do like eight shows a year and I was doing theater all the time, balancing life in that time was next to impossible. The way I did it was I just didn't sleep, which I can no longer get away with like I used to. There was a comment that I saw regarding this film. Uh, I forget who said it. Might have been one of the directors. But just mentioning that they had made a ton of films all about going to war and dying for your nation and for protecting the people back home. And now they're making films about um, dying for, for your craft, for your art. 
I do think that these ideas are timeless, but I do think it's still interesting that this film is coming out in the post-war setting. There is something that is a little bit more low stakes about everything that's going on versus what the directors were doing with Colonel Blimp or the 49th Parallel. Yeah. That, and that's not even me trying to explain why I didn't like the film. I just think that's interesting. Yeah. That this film is still tied to its time and place in a way. One movie that has to be mentioned um, later in Powell and Pressburger's career is uh, The Tales of Hoffman, which is an adaptation of the opera of the same name. That film is essentially what if we took the trippy section of The Red Shoes and turned it into a feature-length movie? It is incredible. It's And I think it's only an hour and 13 minutes long. It's pretty short. But it just tells this huge story, and it involves... It has way more stage elements than the Red Shoes does. Like, you actually see transitions happen on stage and the camera shooting in and out of it. Like, it looks like it's actually being done on stage with post stuff done on top of it. Um, and I, I would highly recommend that. I think that that's kind of an underlooked movie of The Archers. Now, do you want to look at a review for the Red Shoes from the time period? I would love that. Let's get a professional opinion in here. now i understand that um people from the ballet community were kind of sniffy towards this film because of that let's be real extraordinary midpoint the 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 best part of the film Uh, i I understand a lot of people didn't uh appreciate it said it was kind of like cheating cut so much and you are using all these visual effects it's not a real dance that's what some people in the ballet community were saying. This was an incredibly successful film at the time, I understand. Which is really interesting because they had no money to market it at all, so it actually didn't do well opening weekend in Britain. It was almost entirely through word of mouth. (laughs) This sentence is my heart. The Archers are a couple of conscientious movie makers in England who paint with color as Joseph von Sternberg once painted in black and white. I mean... Exactly. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the incomparable black narcissists. Yeah, they love this reviewer loved black narcissists. They had a movie in between Black Narcissists and the Red Shoes. This is insanity. Yeah, I do think this section in the middle of the review is kind of interesting where you get the thoughts from um Michael Powell. Yeah, it's so interesting. Here he's mentioning how the reception to the wizard of oz was colder in america than it was in other places that's still so weird to think about i i think that's so weird to think about that movie like did we even really talk about that in the 39 episode i don't think so we mentioned that the film came out yeah we just we mentioned that mr smith goes to washington was the highest or second highest uh second highest because that was gone with the wind Oh, Gone with the Wind, duh. Um, yeah, second highest. So, you know, for all intents and purposes, it was the highest grossing film. Yeah. <laughs> if we if we ignore the inevitable mammoth of Gone with the Wind. But yeah, Wizard of Oz did not make a lot of money in America. Powell is saying here that Wizard of Oz was a big hit overseas. And uh, on your side of the ocean, you may have thought of... The Wizard of Oz and Cover Girl as only good films, but to us, they were terrific. I'm getting lost. I'm getting lost in this. This is a good poll. I think it's interesting that he 
differentiates British films from American films in a way that I don't quite understand. And maybe it's just because I'm not seeing the difference between the films um, at the time. You know, I don't have a large sample pool. Yeah. Because to me, this still feels like a Hollywood film, right? It's got, it's lavish. And so does Black Narcissist, right? Like they, they don't feel like foreign films. I would disagree with that. I think Black Narcissus is way more controversial than anything Hollywood was willing to touch at this time. Even something like Double Indemnity? Yeah, because Double Indemnity isn't, like, messing around with religion or colonialism or... I don't know. Yeah, I I couldn't see either of these movies being made in Hollywood at this time period. Especially when you think of, like, the color musicals that are going to be coming out of Hollywood soon. And I, The Red Shoes isn't a musical, but it might as well be. What's, like, a lush color musical the wizard of oz even i mean the wizard of oz is it's just spectacle after spectacle and it's great i love that movie but it doesn't have the patience with its characters and the story development that the red shoes does even though (laughs) even though she's hilariously intact after being run over by a whole train (laughs) um and then you see Julian lean down and you're like, oh, we're not even going to see it because it'd be so gruesome. And then when you do see her, you're like, oh, well, I mean, she's <laughs> bleeding, but she's not like split in three. Like you would think that she <laughs> you would think, right? Like, am I wrong? No, you're 100 percent right. It's a little it's a little silly. <laughs> All that to say, I can't imagine a Hollywood production at this time showing someone within the text of the literal script, killing themselves and then us seeing their bloodied body as their final words are take off the shoes, you know, like I think these movies are way darker and way more interesting (laughs) to be honest than like major budget musicals. of. Okay. I think you're right. And I'm just not appreciating the grip that the Hayes code probably had on film productions in Hollywood. Like a vice. Uh, that being said, these films were still very popular in America, and they still made quite a bit of money there. So I stand by that idea that the Hayes office is less influential than it was uh, back in the middle of the 1930s. If I'm not incorrect, The Red Shoes was nominated for Best Picture. Yes, that is correct. Powell and Pressburger, um, there are two roles on set. Do you know what they were kind of best at handling between the two of them michael powell was the director side he was better at working with actors and he actually had the more successful solo directing career both before and after and he had a lot more experience in film press Berger was more involved in the producing side of things the legal side of things but they both were considered directors because press Berger also had a really big hand in the production design and was a really good overseer of making sure those elements were staying consistent. So he worked with Jack Cardiff more, and that was sort of where they landed. I love these guys' films. I think that nobody has ever come close to doing color film the way these two do in these movies, and honestly, their future films as well, Peeping Tom and Tales of Hoffman being the two major standouts for me. I love the stuff that Kurosawa does with color later. I like the way color is played with in a medium in years to come. And there are great examples of that in movies that we are going to discuss in this podcast. But none of those 
methods, none of that technique, I think, would exist if it weren't for these two showing what you can do with color in film and how it isn't just something to gag your audience and to get attention. It's something you can use to create thematic structure. And I love that about their movies. Yeah, I I love these directors. And these are my two personal favorite movies of theirs, um, with the Red Shoes being my favorite movies of theirs. Also, easily like one of my top movies ever. So fantastic. Even more so than Treasure of Sierra Madre, which I do feel the need to clarify. I said earlier that was my favorite movie of the year. I guess in my head I meant not <laughs> not counting the red shoes since we're discussing that right now. I don't know why. Now I'm circling back to an hour and a half ago. I mean, like, wait, why did I say that? Um, <laughs> what are, what are your what are your final thoughts? Yeah. I'm watching these two. I, exactly what you said. I, I think it's really cool and impressive to watch filmmakers at this time using color in unique and fascinating ways. I really liked Black Narcissus, and this film is good, but it was not my favorite of the two. I can respect that. Like I said, if this had been done by someone else, I would be less inclined to compare the two films, and I'd probably like this a bit more. It's long. It feels a little slow. It, it doesn't have the greatest pacing, in my opinion. But that midpoint, the dance sequence, is stunning. And that is a great moment. They actually adapted the Red Shoes into a modern ballet only two years ago. It's true. How do you feel about that? So I've actually seen um, large chunks of it. The, the entire score is Bernard Herrmann film score music so it's got stuff from citizen kane it doesn't actually contain the music composed for the red shoes the movie but it works perfectly fine but yeah i I think that that's really interesting that the ballet is uh composed and conducted around film score music as sort of an homage because it's not the red shoes the hans christian anderson fairy tale like you see in this movie it's an adaptation of this movie for ballet so it includes a ballet within a ballet. Uh, yeah, no, I, re- regardless of, uh, you know, I really did think this was going to be a big gush long hour fest of these two movies. <laughs> I'm sorry. I ruined it. No, I no. ruined the night for you, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I would never want you to not give your true opinion on this piece that we're doing together. It's one of the reasons I love it. And honestly, like, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really happy. There's an episode where we, disagree because that truly hasn't happened yet (laughs) yeah and who knows you know maybe in like a few years you'll revisit this one and you'll be like oh i guess we disagreed on to be or not to be i thought of that because i told you that same piece of advice for to be or not to be see every movie you like i'm just waiting for you to eventually like once you watch it again (laughs) and i'm just waiting for you to eventually fall out of love yeah with a page of madness oh my god you know i watched that again I thought it was so good. Yeah. That's that's still been like my favorite discovery of this podcast so far. Um, next week, we're going to be discussing Carol Reeves, The Third Man, starring Joseph Cotton, Alita Valley, and Orson Welles. Thank you. That was an incredible read. You can always check our show notes to see where The Third Man is streaming or available to rent. 
I think I'm going to have to rent this one. Uh, I guess it's available on IndieFlix. Are we recording Wednesday? Uh, no, because it's uh, St. Patrick's Day. Oh, really? Should we get drunk and record the third thing? <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Um, oh my gosh, are we still recording? I've been recording. <laughs> well, let's just put a stop to that.